Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you and we glorify you. Lord, we thank you for the provision that you've made for us in Christ Jesus. Lord, we've sang a song, open the eyes of our heart, Lord. Lord, we know that you've created all things for your majesty, for your glory. And Lord, I pray for that person who finds themselves in a dark place, in a difficult place, in an empty place, perhaps even in a dead place. Lord, I pray that they would open their hearts and open their eyes and that they would be able to see Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. And Heavenly Father, we pray again, Lord, for those people who find themselves wondering and questioning whether or not you really are good. Lord, I pray that you would confirm to them once and forever that you are good and that you're worthy of praise. In Jesus' name, amen. We're looking at John chapter 9, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 7. John chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. I do want to remind you that if you've missed any portion of the Gospel of John, it's available in the media room. If you've missed any portion of the book of Daniel, it's also available. John chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Now, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said these things, he spat on the ground and he made clay with the saliva and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went and washed and he came back seeing it was a miracle. In John's gospel, there are a series of seven miracles that were recorded for the purpose of confirming Christ's deity, confirming his identity, confirming his message. The first three signs demonstrate how a person is saved. We saw in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, how... Jesus changed the water to wine. We are changed through the word. We are changed and saved by faith, healing the nobleman's son in chapter 4, verses 43 through 54. By grace, healing the impotent man in chapter 5. The last four signs point us to the results of, of salvation. One of the results of, of salvation is satisfaction. Another peace another light. And so we see the last four signs include satisfaction, feeding the 5,000 in chapter 6. Peace, stilling the storm in chapter 6, verse 16. Light, healing the blind man here in verses 1 through 7. Light, raising Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11, verses 1 through 44. And so again, in Christ, satisfaction, Peace, light, life. Now, light is used over and over again in the Bible in a number of different ways. It can sometimes refer to the intellect of human beings, like it is in Isaiah chapter 50, verse 11. Sometimes it refers to the word of God. Sometimes it will make reference to the person who walks in fellowship with God. In John's gospel, Jesus has already plainly stated he is the light of the world in chapter 8, verse 12, here in verse 5. And he's going to repeat, I am the light of the world in chapter 12, verse 46. And so in a very real sense, the entrance of Jesus into the world 
Jesus himself enables the mind to become intelligent and the heart open. Only where Jesus is loved and his word is preached do we find minds active and hearts open. And we see the ability to penetrate the darkness that grips the soul. The Bible tells us that human beings, apart from Christ, there, there is this dark spiritual mask, if you will. Shingles that cover their eyes. And it is Jesus who reveals the clear meaning and the destiny of human existence. Just like the sun, when it comes out during the day, gives you the ability to see everything around you. Jesus, in a spiritual sense, the light of Jesus, the presence of Jesus, the message of Jesus, gives you the ability to know, see, and understand the Bible. And so the chapter is filled with drama and theological insight. The blind man has many of the characteristics of the lost sinner. He is blind and he's blind from birth. He's begging. He's helpless. And Jesus comes to the man in grace. Jesus is willing to irritate the man in the process of providing illumination. He's going to take a dirt clod and stick it in his eye. I got to tell you something. If someone has ever said to you, well, thanks and thanks for that sharp stick in my eye or thanks for that piece of dirt in my eye. You understand what I'm talking about? The power of Jesus to heal the man brings glory to God. But it also brings notice by others. And so it is with the person who's born from on high, the person who's born again. When you come into a right relationship with God, when you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, it brings glory to God. But guess what else it does? It brings fear and suspicion to people who are around you. And by the way, all of human beings, all, all of mankind, they're born spiritually blind. And so part of the message of the Bible is we need to have our eyes open. And the mission of Jesus, in part, is to open our eyes so that we can see him. Jesus will take a man's physical blindness and will use it as an illustration of what it means to see Jesus. Remember that Jesus is the very theme of God's revelation. He alone is the perfect revelation of God. And a man's spiritual eyes can be opened so that you can see God through Jesus Christ. But it brings an important lesson and maybe the most important thing that I can say, if I can say it in a single sentence, it would be this apart from Jesus. No man will ever see God. It bears repeating, doesn't it? Apart from Jesus, no man will ever see God. And the Bible makes it abundantly clear that when you become a Christian, when you enter into faith and confidence and real relationship with God in a very spiritual sense, your eyes are opened and your heart is opened and you begin to see Jesus. It begins with contemplation or condemnation. Look in verse one. It says, now, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. We're not told where this encounter takes place. Remember, for those of you who are familiar with John chapter 8, Jesus has been addressing the religious leaders. He has been laying claims to his identity and to his mission and to his destiny. And when we come to the end of chapter chapter 8, Jesus says, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. He makes a declaration of deity and they take up stones because they're going to put him to death. We have every reason to believe that wherever this is taking place, it's taking place in Jerusalem, it's taking place on the Temple Mount, and he addresses the blind man to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. There was something about this man that attracted the attention of Jesus. And the emphasis in the text is on the verb saw. It means that Jesus sees in such a way 
that he has care and concern and compassion. And the disciples also saw something that caused them to evaluate the man's circumstance and and provide the setting for their theological question. Why is this person suffering? Now, again, there is a point that has to be made. That just like in real life, in your life, you may not be aware of it. You may have not have been aware of it in the past. But that God sees you. And that Jesus sees you. He's aware of your circumstances. He's aware of your heart. He's aware of the darkness that you've experienced. He's aware of the deadness inside of you. He is aware of every painful circumstance, every tear that has been shed, every circumstance that you face. For those of you who are Christians, I want you to do a little mental exercise just for a moment. I want you to remember back to the day that you were saved, the day that you became a Christian and you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior. And then I want you to go back one more day, the day before you were saved, the day before you came to the realization that Jesus Christ is both Savior and Lord. What was your life like? What was your heart like? What was your speech like? Did you understand spiritual things? In her autobiography, Helen Keller in the story of her life, relates the circumstances of her own blindness. She writes, Have you ever been at sea in a dense fog when it seemed as if a tangible white darkness shut you in and the great ship, tense and anxious, groped her way toward the shore with plummet and sounding line and you waited with beating heart for something to happen? I was like that ship before my education began. Only I was without compass or sounding line. And I had no way of knowing how near the harbor was. Light! Give me light! Was the wordless cry of my soul. And the light of love shone on me in that very hour. I felt footsteps approaching. I stretched out my hand as I supposed... To my mother, someone took it and I was caught up and held close in the arms of her who had come to reveal all things to me and more than all things else to love me. For for those of you who are familiar with Helen Keller, her her life was dramatized in a movie made popular by Anne Bancroft and... and, um, Patty Duke. Patty Duke plays the young Helen Keller. Thank you, Susan. And in a dramatized scene, um, she literally sweeps the young girl off of her feet and begins twirling and twirling and twirling around. We have every reason to believe that this man, born blind, had a similar encounter with Jesus Christ. For years he lived in a world not simply of darkness, but remember the consequences of darkness. Just like you. Just like you. And then Jesus came to him by grace. You'll remember if you just take a quick peek in chapter 9 and verse 14. It says, now it was the Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened the eyes for this blind man. It was a Sabbath like any other Sabbath. But people didn't get help on the Sabbath. People didn't heal on the Sabbath. And it was going to create problems for Jesus and for the blind man. And look at verse 2. Curiosity or compassion. It says that his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? I want to remind you that the disciples are curious about the man's condition. And they use this as an opportunity to ask the master a theological question. And I understand that and sensitive to it and can see how it could happen. I mean, haven't you ever wondered about people who are born blind? Do you wonder what they think about color? Do you wonder what they dream about? Do you wonder whether or not they see images? Do you wonder about the theological issues? 
Was this person suffering because of his sin or his parents' sin? Did God somehow know in advance he would be a great sinner and then punish him in advance? Like the Hindus believe. Is this some sort of cosmic karma from pre-born transgressions? How can a person not yet born be punished for sins not yet committed? It seems to make perfect sense to ask the question. Let's do it. Jesus, why is there suffering? Their premise was deeply rooted in the belief that all such disability was the result of sin. If you were a Jew living in, the, in a Jewish world in the first century, it wouldn't have been uncommon to teach that even babies in the womb were capable of sin. And some teachers would point to the fact that, that babies kick in the womb as a predisposition to sinful behavior. If you're a woman and if you've ever been pregnant and you start to get out there and all of a sudden you feel the jabs on the side of your uterine wall, you're going, dude, what are you doing down there? I can tell already this person has a mind of his own or her own. David said that he was conceived in iniquity. That he was born in sin. As a matter of fact, if you look to the, the Jewish Torah, the traditional book of Jewish law, they believe that God could impose judgment of parents' iniquity upon their children and grandchildren. It was the belief of some Jewish teachers that life was a system of reward and punishment, merit and demerit, good deeds and bad deeds. By the way, do parents pass on problems to children? We know that they do. Do parents with sexually transmitted diseases, genetic anomalies, alcohol or drug abuse, do they pass on problems to their children? We know that if you are a woman and if you have gonorrhea and you give birth to a child, you run the risk of giving birth to a blind child. If you have AIDS, you have run the risk of infecting your child with AIDS. There are legitimate questions that we can ask. But sometimes the questions and the controversies become a substitute for something far more simple and practical. Human kindness, personal care, compassion. They're so busy thinking about the theological solution to a problem, they forget that this person is living in a dark world, living in a lonely world. When you read the New Testament, would you characterize Jesus as being a blunt person? The strange thing about blunt people is that they usually come to the point first. Have you ever met someone who pretty much said what they mean and mean what they say and, and there's no disguising? I mean, they just sort of, it just sort of comes out. That's exactly what Jesus does here. Rather than scold his disciples or rebuke his disciples... He's going to give them a brief lesson on the nature of God and the nature of Christ. We sometimes fall into the trap of thinking about people's pain and people's suffering as objects for theological discussion rather than subjects of practical mercy. And it should give hope to each and every one of you, especially if you feel trapped in the Calvinist Arminian debate. And you feel like you have to know the answer to every theological nuance. Look at Jesus' response. In verse 3, Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. By the way, if ever there was a perfect opportunity for Jesus to address the debate of depravity, and personal responsibility. This is it. But he doesn't. Whatever the reason for the man's blindness, whether accident or disease, the answer of Jesus is interesting. He dispels the notion that we can always draw a direct relationship between a parent's action and a child's circumstance. He draws 
a direct corollary elsewhere in the New Testament when he's asked about an event that takes place where a tower collapsed and a number of people are killed and Jesus asks the question, were these people greater sinners than everyone else in Jerusalem that they should die under tragic circumstances? We know that a child can inherit parental weakness, serious sickness, and disease. The Lord isn't saying or suggesting that no human disabilities are the result of sin. Do people experience disability because of sin? Yes, they do. What is Jesus saying? He's saying that in this specific instance, this man's blindness, and listen carefully, was not punishment for sin, but rather, read it for yourself, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. That's the answer Jesus gives. Is Jesus saying God deliberately created this man's blindness so he could display the power of healing? Not necessarily. How are we to absorb these words? Clearly, Jesus is saying that God has a plan. Clearly, Jesus is saying that God has a purpose and that the plan and the purpose isn't necessarily our plan and purpose. In fact, God does have a plan and does have a purpose. And in his sovereignty, God is going to allow this person's circumstance as an opportunity to work, to demonstrate his compassion, to prove his power, to demonstrate that he does care and look after people so that he can lead other people, unbelievers, to a right relationship with God. As a matter of fact, we discover later on in the New Testament, John is coming to John the Baptist is coming to a place of, of pain and problem, of, of doubt and discouragement in his own life. He's taken prisoner. He sends people to Jesus and he says, Have I made a mistake? Are you really the Messiah? And Jesus' response is, Tell them that blind people see and deaf people have their ears opened. Lame people walk. Dead people are coming back to life. The Lord allowed this. And we have to remember something. And you must never forget this. God is too loving to be unkind. And God is too wise to make mistakes. And God is too powerful to be thwarted in His infinite purposes. There are those who question God's goodness in the presence of a man born blind. And maybe you're one of them. Maybe you've come to the conclusion that God isn't good all the time. How can God be good if He's condemned this man to a world of darkness? How can God be good if He's condemned this person to a world of begging, robbed of the ease and the pleasure that accompany those with sight? There are those who are going to use this man's blindness as a reason to reject God, to reject the Bible, to reject the claims of Jesus. Maybe you've tried to do that in the past. If God is good, then how do you explain my life? How do you explain my parents? How do you explain their abuse? How do you explain this world? How do you explain the suffering and the trauma? But all such bitter philosophies find their answer in part in the book of Job as a whole and the lessons of this blind man specifically. John Phillips writes, This man's blindness was the touch of God in his life, not punitive nor arbitrary. It was part of a plan unknown to anyone but God and his Christ, a plan intended to bring Christ into this man's life and ultimate praise and ultimate glory to God. It was also intended to reveal God's timing. Look at verse four. I must work the works of him who sent me while it's day. 
The night is coming when no one can work. In other words, this man's blindness was timed by God to coincide with the Lord's earthly ministry. God has other timings in his providential dealings with other persons. Although those marvelous conjunctions of our need and God's purposes are often obscured to us, they are clear to him. Perhaps part of eternity will be devoted to unraveling for us some of the marvels and mysteries of God's ways. If we cannot see those ways, the fault lies with us. Not with God. Unquote. I like that. Did it ever occur to you? Did it ever cross your mind that God placed you in the exact family, in the exact circumstances, with the exact grace and the exact mercy, with the exact benefits, with the exact things that were going to be necessary to bring you to a place where you would cry out to God so that you could know Him and need Him? As a matter of fact, I want you to revisit verse 4. Look what it says. I must work the works of Him who sent me while it is day. The, the night is coming when no one can work. Jesus' answer in part is He comes to work the works of God. And what are those? Jesus claims God sent Jesus to do this work. By the way, is that new to the Gospel of John? Is this the first time we're introduced to the notion that God sent Jesus? No, it isn't. It's a reoccurring theme in John's gospel. God sent Jesus into your life, into your world, into your circumstances. It was God who did this. It wasn't Satan. God sent Jesus he comes with a mission, and the mission isn't a self-serving mission. It's from God. And what are the works that God sent Jesus to accomplish? I'm going to suggest to you that those works are many, but I'm just going to point three out to you. Number one, seeking and saving the lost. God seeks human beings. It was Jesus who took the initiative with this man born blind. And it was Jesus who took the initiative with you. You didn't invite him. He invited you. He came to you. God, the Bible says, sent Jesus in while we were yet sinners. God sent him when you were in rebellion and disobedience. God sent him when you were bitter and resentful and angry and distant. God sent him and he reached out to you just like he reached out to this man. The man was blind. He had no idea that help was even available. Was there a time in your life when you had no idea that help was even available? Do you remember the time when you were walking down those streets? Do you remember the time when the lights would go out and you would place yourself on your bed and you would cry yourself to sleep on the pillow and you wondered if anyone was listening to anything that you had to say? The man was blind. If Jesus refused to reach out and help the man, he would have remained blind. He would have remained in darkness forever. And if Jesus hadn't come to you, you would have remained blind. You would have remained in darkness forever. But he did come to you. And he came in love and he came with light in Luke 19.10, Jesus said, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. If you keep repeating in your heart and in your mind, I'm not lost and I'm fine just the way that I am, then you're right. Jesus isn't looking for you. Because you're living in a world of fantasy. That you're just fine the way that you are. 
Jesus comes seeking and saving the lost. But look at number two. He comes in goodness, in love, in care and compassion for the blind man. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, it says, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He didn't come for you because he hates you. He came for you because he loves you. He didn't come for you because you're evil, but rather because he's good. And so the next time a person says to you, how can you be sure? How can you be sure that God is good? You, you tell them, look at me. Only a good God would save somebody like me. And that's number three. There's the work of delivering from darkness and giving sight. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, Paul writes, Who has delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son. Not only does He seek and save the lost, not only does He do it because He's motivated by goodness and love and care, He will make Good on what he plans to do. And the text reminds us of the urgency of the mission. Look at the, the text again in verse 4. I must work. The Greek word for I must is dei. It means urgent. It means compulsion. It means necessity. For Jesus, there's no excuse, there's no question, there's no doubt, there's no misgiving, there's no reservation. God must do His work. Now, I want you to understand what that means for you. You're not an afterthought in God's plan of salvation. You didn't accidentally come to a saving knowledge of the truth. He loves you. He's always loved you. He was looking for you. He's always been looking for you. He desires to save you. And He will save you. And look what it says. The time. There are time restrictions. We don't have forever to do the work. The work must be done now. Look what Jesus says. The night is coming when no one can work. The time will end. The opportunity will be lost. And so Jesus must fulfill his father's mission. And look what it says in verse 34. In John chapter 4, verse 34, it says... My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Jesus is going to complete the project. The project, of course, is his life, his death and his resurrection. But in the end, the ultimate completion of the project is your heart, your circumstances, your friendship. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 5, it says, Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. You're to present yourself to a watching world. It says redeeming the time. The expression redeeming the time means to purchase or buy back from the marketplace so that it can be used. Again, the time is short, and so you need to make the best effort in your time. The answer Jesus gives to his disciples in part, this man is born blind in part to reveal God's timing, to reveal God's love, to reveal God's compassion. And look carefully, to reveal God's truth. How do we know that? The very next verse. Look at chapter 9, verse 5. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. What does that mean? This man's blindness became in part the basis of one of the greatest statements, again, ever spoken by Jesus. Over and over again, Jesus is going to say these amazing things. I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the light. I am come into the world. Jesus certainly said this before in John chapter 8, verse 12, in the context of a woman taken in adultery. 
So it was taken in an immoral context. And now the context is physical. It's in the context of suffering and pain. There are those who claim that God is indifferent and unconcerned and uncaring. And, uh, and he doesn't really care about suffering. But nothing could be further from the truth. Because he comes into the world. When the world needs him most. And by the way. In this passage, the definite article is omitted. So the statement in Greek reads this way. I am light in the world. Isn't that interesting? The Lord then heals the man, gives physical sight to the man, not only to demonstrate his care and compassion, but also his active involvement in the mysteries of life. It's only in Jesus that we can even begin to address the issue of pain and suffering and tragedy. Because in Jesus, there is hope. In Jesus, there are answers. In Jesus, there is forgiveness and restoration. So I repeat, if a person desires to be delivered from darkness, they have to come to Jesus. And look what it says in verses 6 and 7. When he had said these things, He spat on the ground and he made clay with the saliva and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. By the way, the word for clay is pelos. It will appear in verse 11, in verse 14, and in verse 15. The first meaning in the classic Greek language is mud. Dude, the guy's blind. Why would you... Add insult to injury by saying, here's mud in your eye. Has anyone ever said to you, thanks, and it feels like a sharp stick in my eye. Yeah, you, Have you ever had a little tiny grain of sand in your eye? What happens? It starts to water profusely. It irritates you. I have a daily radio program where I attempt to answer people's questions from the Bible. And every once in a while, I get this question. Why did Jesus spit on the dirt and stick the dirt clod in the poor blind man's eye? I'm going to suggest something to you. That the reason why we know right from the start that the man is born blind is because he has no eyeballs. That there is a dark, blank cavity in the orifices of his head. By the way, up until this point, had anyone ever performed a miracle of providing new eyeballs to a person who's been born blind? Has it ever happened since? Not really. In this passage, Jesus, as a part, if you will, of the accreditation of his own messianic ministry, does the impossible. I call this Lordship LASIK. Not only does he restore the man's sight, he's doing it by restoring eyeballs to the man. Whatever the reason, whatever the answer. I think it's safe to say that dirt in your eyes is an irritation. And the reason why I bring this up is because God is not above irritating you. In the process, when I, before I became a Christian, I was surrounded by Jesus freaks, by people who would come to me, God loves you, Jesus loves you one way, dude. And I would go, oh, this is so wrong. What did I do to deserve being surrounded by Jesus freaks at every moment? Do you remember that in your own life? Wait a minute. You turn on the radio, it's about Christianity. You turn on the TV, there's Billy Graham going, I'm going to ask hundreds of you to get up out of your seat. Wherever you go, whatever you listen to, Jesus is everywhere. Irritating you. Frustrating you. (laughs) Could Jesus have healed the man instantly? Of course. 
Could he have spared himself and the blind man a lot of grief by just simply healing him instantly? Yes. Could he have done it the following day? Yes. But he doesn't. In verse 7 it says, And he said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Let's take a little journey together. Do you think someone let him? Do you think he went by himself? Imagine. He goes to the pool of Siloam. He puts his face into the water. He comes up out of the water. And where there were empty, dark sockets. Now there are eyeballs. He took a piece of dirt, spit on it, and made him a brand new eyeball. By the way, no scientific instrument is as sensitive as the light on a person's eye. And in the dark, its sensitivity increases not 1,000 times, not 10,000 times, but 100,000 times. The human eye can detect the faintest glow less than a thousandth as bright as a candle's flame. The human eye can see light from the stars, and the nearest star is four and a half light years away. In the first service, I said 25 billion Light years, someone corrected me, Gina, you're wrong, it's not 25 billion. I go, well, how far is it? He goes, 25 trillion. A billion is a, a trillion is a thousand billions. Automatically, the muscles of the eye relax so that the lens is small and thick for distant viewing as they stretch the lens to bring them into focus. No wonder the eye was the original model for cameras. And by the way, there's a reason why you can't spit in your own eye. You've ever tried? I know some of you might go, okay, let's give it a... It's just air. I know it sounds gross, but... The reason why we can't spit in our own eye is because we have amazing reflexes. Because of God's wisdom and power, a person's eyelid closes automatically when we sneeze. Try it. The next time you sneeze, go, okay, I'm going to do it, dude. I'm going to keep my eyes open the next time I sneeze. You can't do it. At the same time, our soft palate opens wide to permit expulsion through the nasal passage. But it closes tightly when we cough in order to channel irritants out of the throat. It's a miracle. But your eye is a miracle. The very fact that you can see anything at any time is a miracle. And I'm going to suggest something to you. I don't have biblical proof. But I'm going to suggest that each and every one of you have been given vision and sight, those of you who have vision and sight, and those of you who don't have vision and sight, so that one day you will see Jesus. Jesus has the power to make the miracle happen. You see, it wasn't simply to rescue a blind man so he could see. It's so he could see Jesus. My favorite version of the Helen Keller story is, again, the one with Anne Bancroft and Patty Duke. And there's one scene in the movie that's taken from her life story. And she writes about it. The dramatic moment when Annie Sullivan first broke through her dark, silent world with the light of language. She writes about it this way. We walked down the path to the well house, attracted by the fragrance of the honeysuckle with which it was covered. Someone was drawing water and, and my teacher placed my hand under the spout and as the cool stream gushed over one hand, she spelled into the other the word water. First slowly, then rapidly, I stood still, my whole attention fixed upon the motions of her fingers. Suddenly I felt a misty consciousness as if something forgotten, a thrill of returning thought, and somehow the mystery of language was revealed to me, I knew that W-A-T-E-R 
meant wonderful, cool, flowing liquid in my hand. That living word awakened my soul, gave it light and joy and set it free. There were barriers still, it's true, but the barriers that could in time be swept away. Do you remember the time when God spelled out the presence of J-E-S-U-S in your heart and you understood that He loved you, that He was willing to forgive you, and that you could experience friendship and relationship with Him? The cure is going to create a controversy. The religious leaders will attack the man's faith and then they will attack the man's family. When you get saved, the devil will attack your faith and don't be surprised if he attacks your family. There's a proverb in Asia. They say seeing something once is better than hearing about it a hundred times. Can you imagine? The man has eyeballs. He comes out of the pool. He sees for the first time his own reflection. He sees for the first time the presence of the sun. He sees for the first time all of the people who are around him. Some of you are familiar with Fanny Crosby. She was born March 24th. I like that because that's my birthday. I know three famous people born March 24th. Fanny Crosby, Steve McQueen, Clyde Barrow. I know you're waiting. Who's Clyde Barrow? Bonnie and Clyde. She was blind at the age of six weeks, but she was never bitter about her blindness. At six weeks old, she caught a cold. And it developed an inflammation of the eyes and the family physician was wasn't available. And the man who came to to in his place recommended that they put hot poultices as a treatment on the baby's eyes and the botched procedure blinded her. In the course of her life, she wrote some 8000 hymns to the Lord Jesus. One pastor sympathetically remarked I think it's a great pity that the master didn't give you sight when he showered you with so many other gifts and she replied quickly do you know that if at birth I had been able to make one petition I would have it would have been that I should be born blind and he said what why and she said because when I get to heaven the first face that will ever gladden my sight will be the image of Jesus, my Savior. You see, she understands something that most people will never understand. That she saw clearly well into her life. And by the way, she sang at Ulysses S. Grant's funeral. Do you know what she sang? Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of His Spirit, washed in His blood. You know it. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. Perfect submission. Perfect delight. Visions of rapture. Now burst on my sight, angels descending, bring from above, echoes of mercy, whispers of love. I and my Savior, happy and blessed, watching and waiting, looking above, filled with his goodness, lost in his love. How can a person who can't even see have so much to say about vision, about sight, about watching? 
That's because eyes can be open. We can be delivered from darkness and from sin and from shame and from death and from corruption and from hell and destruction. God is willing to open up our eyes. By the way, at Fanny Crosby's funeral, another song was sung by Eliza Hewitt. She said, Away to the country of sunshine and song, our songbird has taken her flight, and she who has sung in the darkness so long now sings in the beautiful light. One day, one day, we'll sing. Clearly. And we'll see Jesus. Clearly. Let's stand. Heavenly Father, I pray for that person who has been surrounded by darkness and filled with shame, filled with anger and bitterness and resentment, emptiness, deadness of heart and deadness of life. And they need hope. And they need light. Lord, we're reminded that Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart. For they shall see God. And Lord, I think I know why. Because it's an undivided heart. It's a pure heart. Undiminished. The reason why the pure in heart can see God is because they can't see anything else. And Heavenly Father, we long for the time when the only thing that we're able to see is Jesus. In His glory. Jesus in His love. Jesus in His compassion. Jesus in His forgiveness. And Lord, I pray again for that person who, whose dark, empty world needs to be filled with light. Lord, I pray that even now they would begin to pray a prayer. Jesus, I need You in my life. Jesus, I need You in my heart. Jesus, I need to experience forgiveness and hope. Lord, I need a miracle. I need a miracle. I need to come back to life. I need to experience hope and forgiveness of my sin. And if that's you, I'm going to invite you to come forward. If you find yourself in a dark world, in a dead world, just come on down here while we sing this song. And I'm going to pray with you. And hopefully you'll see things that you've never seen. And you'll hear things that you've never heard. And you'll experience things that will provide the basis of eternal life for you.